Hey everybody, thanks for listening, and as always, thanks to our sponsor, KnowledgeBand, the leader in human performance improvement training and technologies. If you want the most advanced safety technology adapted from the human performance principles of the nuclear and aviation industries, then KnowledgeBand is error reduction that works. They were the first company to tie human performance to serious injury and fatality or SIF precursors. Learn more at knowledgevine.com. In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Today, my guest on the show is Lamberto Nono. Lamberto, did I say that right? Yeah, indeed. Nono. Yeah, it's a double N. A double N. Okay, all right. Well, I'm known for uh, butchering names with my Texas accent. That was good. So, everybody, Lamberto is the HSE Director for North America and Regions at Baker Hughes. Lamberto, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. And, geez, Russell, I need to say that straight away, your intro, a global industry where anything can happen. Yeah, that kills me. (laughs) No pun intended. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that is a rather ominous introduction. We try to keep the show light and bright, but everyone coming home safe is serious. We've been using that intro since we started the show six or seven years ago. And I'm thankful for the fact that it's grown to 134 different countries. So it's international in scope. And You know, you have that lovely British voice makeover introducing the show, and then I come on with my Texas accent, and it really... uh, You want to talk about my accent? Well, (laughs) we're probably going to do that here in just a minute. But I want to say, first of all, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. We've been actually trying to get this arranged for months now, and some of my listeners may be tired of hearing me say it. But this OGG and HSE podcast has been ranked as one of the top 10 best oil and gas podcasts to listen to. And the reason is because of the quality of the guests like yourself. So thank you again for taking the time to do this. Thanks to you, Russell. So I'm very interested in diving into your role as the HSE director for North America and regions, which I know you just had a big international conference. That's one of the reasons why it's taken us so long to yeah. get, get this done. So what does regions mean? Yeah, that's just the global strategic okay. responsibilities for our operation. And region is basically the business unit. We manage our operation in every regional area. And you mentioned role. I would say rather than role, mine is is a responsibilities. is really a responsibility to connect the passion of our people and our leader in what is the most important things of all, making sure that we don't harm people or the environment while conducting our business in the regions, right? And actually innovate in the energy technology space. Okay, so this is international in scope. You mentioned it a while ago, we're talking about accents. So you have an Italian background, right? That's right. There is no way to hide. My hands still, I'll say, move a lot. So even yeah, if those be careful listening. during this podcast, you'll mess things up. You'll hit the microphone. But as you can hear, my accent is still a bit Italianish, right? And I try to fix that. My daughter says there's a lost cause. Okay, your daughter is right. Let me tell you something. She is right. My English is not nothing wrong with your English, but the accent part. When I was a teenager, my parents moved to Canada. Okay. Now my dad is from Alabama. And we're talking backwoods, Alabama, and he has an Alabama accent. We lived there for three years, and when we came back home, 
all my friends said to me and my brother, they said, you sound like a Yankee. <laughs> we had lost our Texas accent. My dad never lost one ounce of it. It's just now everybody can tell I got my Texas accent back. But anyway, Italy to Texas, that sounds like quite an adventure. Yeah, I mean, the story is long and, of course, is because of Vicky Rukes. I mean, a great opportunity for me. But I think the story starts a bit hard because, you know, in reality, I wanted to be a psychologist, Russell. Oh, wow. Yeah, completely different things, right? I mean, well, not necessarily. I think we may be talking <laughs> about that later. Yeah, because I was 16, Russell. And what happened is one day at school, we had a philosophy teacher. She didn't show up and we got a substitute. Uh-huh. And the substitute was a psychologist, actually. And, you know, at that time I was 16. And she started to talk with us. She started to, to talk about some basic psychologists. And I really loved that. It was fascinating. I still remember. I was 16, but I remember those days, the substitute, the class, and I loved those lessons. I can tell you, instead of buying my lunch, you know, my sandwich, I started saving money to buy books. Psychology, sociology, oh, anthropology. Wow. Yeah, I really love that. I started with Freud and Yang, but actually I ended up loving Eric Byrne and the transactional analysis. Actually, when I, it was the time to pick the college, I went to my dad and said, hey, dad, I'm going to study psychology. And he couldn't believe it. What did he think you were going to study? <laughs> he wanted me to be an architect, actually. So, Oh, really? Yeah. And so when I told him, look, he said, you can study anything I want. I'll help you to reach your goal, no problem. But bear in mind, when you finish university, you have to cover yourself. That's your problem then. And I knew that being a psychologist in the early 2000s in Italy wouldn't be easy, but I really never made the math, right? So what I did, actually, I came from a little village, but I went to one of the relatives. You know, those people, that, you know, those little village, they're a very respective person. He has a nice family, right, right, nice house. Right. And most importantly, for a boy of my age, he has a nice car. <laughs> and the guy, I mean, he was a great guy. He was an engineer. So we start talking. I went to his house a few times in those weeks. And in reality, my other passion was motorbikes and engine. And it was a great passion with that. I mean, by the time I got my first car when I was 18, actually my motorbike, I changed everything. I modified it completely, even the frame. I cut it and welded in effort to make it lighter, right? I mean, so, so you were already an engineer. I had all the passion to that. So basically I became a mechanical engineer. That's what I did. And so you went to school in Italy and became Italy, a mechanical, yeah, mechanical engineer. engineer. And eventually I joined Baker Hughes, but I didn't know much of the oil and gas industry at that time when I joined Baker Hughes. But two weeks after being hired as a dream engineer, I was sent to, to a rig site. And there, I mean, wow, I fell in love with the industry immediately. When I went to the rig floor the first time and I saw the amount of energy we were putting on those wells. That blew my mind. Oh, the process is incredible. The industry doesn't get its due for what, what, you know, the people don't technology. understand. They, they think gas comes out of that little <laughs> exactly. pump that you squeeze, you know. Exactly, exactly. But it was only when I got my kind of development assigned as a assignment as a HSE manager for continental Europe that... So you went from drilling engineer to oh I changed several HSE roles. I changed oh several oh okay roles. all right I, mean, you, I, I had my ten years of careers oh okay at that time so I took several roles in the office in the field as a manager in the sales you know several things so that was this development opportunity have you heard about Steve Jobs saying you can't connect the dots looking forward you can only connect looking backward you got to trust that the dots will somehow connect in the future, right? And that's exactly what happened to me, right? Basically, in this new job, I really had to understand why people did what they did, 
what influenced them, the human factor, the human performance, right? So you became a psychologist. <laughs> exactly. It all came together with my passion. I mean, that was unexpected. Unbelievable. Well, that's great. That's a great story. So where I was introduced to you, Lamberto, I caught the video of you speaking at the, I think it was Center for Offshore Safety yep. at OTC. In the yeah, you were doing it. I think IADC was interviewing you or whatever. And you really caught my attention, and we're going to talk about this later when we talk about SIFs. But you mentioned an Italian phrase that translates to what you said, in the wolf's mouth. Remind me, how does that go in Italian? In bocca al lupo. You can try it, Russell. Try it. In bocca al lupo. Oh, I'll butcher this up. In bocca al lupo. <laughs> in bocca yeah. al lupo. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Exactly. It's a very common expression in Italy. So you. Oh, really? Yeah, indeed. Basically, when you are about to face a challenge, we wish each other... To end in, end the, in the wolf's mouth. mouth. Yeah, yeah. And it originated when hunters started to wishing each other to be in a dangerous situation, right? The superstition is that wishing good luck is bad, but wishing bad luck is good. I mean, Italian sounds crazy, but I don't think we are the only one. I think that I heard break a leg. There is an American counterpart to that. There definitely is exactly what you exactly. just described. Yeah, break a leg, it. and then all you respond, thanks. Yeah, I guess. But you know, seriously, <laughs> I mean, think about the conversation in Italy. So you imagine this hunter in a field. Okay. And he's walking and he met the farmer. And the hunter says, oh, good morning, farmer. And the farmer, oh, good morning, hunter. Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to hunt wild boars. And the farmer, oh, really? Oh, in the wolf's mouth. You can imagine the hunter responding, grazie. Thank you, farmer. Is that the right answer? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, you don't <laughs> respond, thank you. No, that's serious. That's fundamental. The hunter will say, may the wolf die. That is crepe lupo. So in bocca lupo. Crepe lupo. In Bocaluco, crepe Yeah, let, let's try this. So, for example, Russell, for your podcast, in Boca lupo, and you respond? Crepe a lupo. Hey, great. <laughs> You're a fast <laughs> learner, Russell. <laughs> have you been I, in Italy before? I, I, no, I have not. I hear it's very beautiful, okay? You start learning, right? But let me clarify, we don't really believe in bad luck. I mean, in reality, bad luck that knows exist. It's just bad preparation. We might eventually face the wolf, but if we are ready for it, we can prevail. And that's absolutely the same concept of, have you heard failing safely? No, this is uh, recently we're hearing more and more in our industry. Italian hunters knew it centuries ago. Well, that makes sense. I think I do recall a major energy company discussing the concepts of failing uh, safely and also failing lucky. Yeah. Can you break that down for us? How does that work? Look, Russell, let me make here an example. I think it's, I got a story from a few years ago in offshore in North Sea, actually. And that was quite an unplanned situation. And the field engineers at that time, you know, they decide to use a device that was not normally used to run anyway, the operation. And all went very, very well. I mean, the entire operation was a success till they were, they were uh, rigging down. And while rigging down, actually, that device was caught up on the top drive's horses and fell. Now, that was just a few kilos, but you don't really need more than 500 grams to kill someone from that height. From that distance, yeah. You know, he went down to the rig floor, gladly, did not really hit anyone. But now the question, Russell, think about it. Is that a failure or a success? That sounds like a failure to me. It depends. That is the point. I mean, surely from a service delivery perspective, from an operational perspective, a drop is a, an unwanted event. I mean, it's un, undesired. You don't want something to drop. It's a failure, no doubt. Okay. But from a safety perspective, they don't hurt anyone, right? So no one got hurt. Exactly. That is a different point. 
the reason why it didn't is because they had barricaded the area. They made sure nobody was in the drop zone. In the zone. drop zone, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then operated. So the device dropped far enough, but it went down exactly where they thought it could. So the event was undesired, but expect and plan for exactly what you said, for failing safely. Don't get me wrong, nobody wants to stop dropping. Nobody wants an uncontrolled release of any source of energy, right? right? The point is that you cannot expect that 100% of the time, 100% of the steps performed by 100% of your people in actually 100% of your operation will go right. And if we can accept that something can go wrong, Russell, we can just ask how likely is this drop? We need to start asking what are the barriers that we have in place to keep our people safe when it will drop? That's actually risk management 101. Yeah, yeah. You don't ask. Yeah. Exactly. And think about it. If someone instead was in the drop zone, if someone entered or could could just have entered, that would have been instead what you said, a fail lucky, fail lucky event. Because maybe the control was not there, did not work or whatever. It was degraded by some other events. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's still an opportunity to learn. You didn't do it right. You just got lucky is what you're saying. Exactly. I mean, it's a gamble you don't want to take, right? It's quite a different story. Okay, so something that I heard you say, you have an emphasis on missing controls rather than just focusing on people's adherence to rules. And we're big on this show about not having the safety cop, but can you delve deeper into that role of individuals in that equation? Yeah, I mean, that's a good catch. You know, one of the human and organizational performance principle, Russell, I would say actually the first one. The first one is people, people will, will make, make mistakes. mistakes. Exactly. Right. You know, error is normal. And we need to build error-tolerant system. The issue actually is that for decades, instead, we've been told in changing the behavior of the people actually is the fundamental mean of reducing the number of incidents. And even worse, if we reduce the amount of incidents, we also reduce the severity, right? You know the safety parameter, the accident triangle from Herbert Heinrich, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. His book was published almost 100 years ago, 1931, if I'm not wrong. But apart the triangle, one of the theories of the book that has been influenced us for the cases, the 88% of the workplace accident are caused by unsafe act of the people or wrong behaviors from the people. The idea is you change those behavior and you stop the incident. Don't get me wrong, Heinrich was a pioneer. To write his book and define all those theories, he has been reviewed an enormous, a huge amount of data from an insurance, a large insurance company. Okay. But... Of course, he studied those reports. He basically took those reports that had been written by the supervisor of the people that got injured and actually interviewed them as well. But think about the supervisor in the early 20th century. What sort of human performance training do you think? We they, didn't, they didn't have any. <laughs> or their culture. Let's about, I don't think they were so advanced to avoid blaming worker for causing incident. Considering how, like you said, safety perspectives definitely have changed over time. Maybe these older theories like Heinrich's, maybe they don't quite hit the mark today. Is that right? Again, Heinrich was trailblazing. I mean, his studies, groundbreaking, is but fascinating for the 1900. But now we're in the 2000. And we still love to believe that we can look at our statistics from yesterday and feel okay today. We love to believe that before you get the serious injuries, you see near miss and then maybe first aid and then maybe a slip and trip and then more serious near miss. 
will have those twisted ankle. And then maybe after you build the base, then eventually you might need to be worried because of some serious injuries coming. But it doesn't work like that. My point is that especially serious injuries, they hide the normal successful work. Having no incident is not a good measure of your safety capacity. We need to actively look for gaps that could lead to incident. That's fundamental. So you're looking for like precursors to SIFs. Exactly. It is fundamental to go and really look for the next things that can happen, especially on what can really hard but our people. I think you said we're talking about the concept of finding the next incident. Yeah, yeah. No, and not looking back and saying, well, we hadn't had any incidents. You referred to the finding next incident. We present that to the Center of Shore Safety Forum uh, very recently. If you look for my name, you'll find the video on YouTube. But that is just a tool. It's the concept, really. It's the concept that counts. The idea, if we keep thinking about safety as something that works when things do not happen, we'll always fail. We need to understand, Russell, that the condition that could lead to the next serious incident already exists today in our organization. The underlying condition of the incident are not something that suddenly appears in the workplace. They just sit silent, awaiting someone that triggers sequence of event or put together a combination of conditions that can lead to the incident. Those conditions hide in everyday work. Think about any task. Let's say this morning, I mean, we've been driving. This is a normal task. Every day we drive and we plan to arrive as expected to our workplace, our office, right? And the goal, of course, is arrive in time and safe and sound. That's right. Now, sometimes our drive, things go exactly as planned and expected, but not all the time. Sometimes, you know, still go right, but they could have been better. Sometimes, you know, surprisingly easy. Sometimes we are late, right? Sometimes we are early. Right. Sometimes we make an error, but still, even driving, but reach the destination anyway. And sometimes, actually, we have such a smooth drive without any concern. And this what we call the normal variation. And I would say, I would add, these are successful rides eventually, right? Then sometimes might go, things might go really awful, far away from what was planned and expected. The variation is so large and so quick that people are not able to recover. And that's where you have the accident, right? But my point is, do we need to wait for an accident? Or can we learn proactively? Can we learn from all those successful variation? Bring this in the workplace now, right? The normal walk is full of opportunities to learn. This is especially true for serious injuries and fatality. They hide themselves in the routine work, in the successful work. Think about how many times we've seen catastrophic failures following an extended period of safe and normal operation, normal work. So we need to engage with the workers. They know it. We need to learn from everyday successful work. We need to pause a moment from telling them what they need to do to stay safe and actually ask them how they can get injured. We need to understand the what, the how, the why they might do things differently from the work as we imagine to get the job done. That's what we call the learning from normal work. And it's about really recognizing that we don't need to wait for an incident to learn and improve. Look, Russell, we mentioned it. In an industry that keeps talking about its performance plateau, it's critical that we understand how to keep learning and improving. It's for the future of our industry. It's the future of our people. Wow, that's profound. 
You sound like a philosopher. You sound like a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Russell. Well, Lamberto, again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You have any other words of wisdom before we sign off here? No, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, everybody out there for listening. Thanks, indeed. Again, another quality guest to this quality show. If you could write us a good review on iTunes or Spotify or simply there's a review link that's listed in the show notes, we would really appreciate it. Please tell your friends to listen. We'll post uh, Lamberto's LinkedIn contact info. I haven't looked in the past few days, but I know that IADC interview is he posted that in LinkedIn. I think you can go from there and find that YouTube that he was talking about. Folks, thanks for listening. Tell your friends to listen. Post us on LinkedIn and your other social media. And also, if you find this podcast beneficial, then make sure you help us keep it up and running by reaching out to our sponsor, KnowledgeVine. Their website link and other contact information is also in the show notes. Or you can contact me and I'll get you in touch because no matter what level your safety program is on right now, if you want to discover the best human performance improvement training and technologies adapted from the nuclear and aviation industries, then KnowledgeVine is your dependable partner for full-service human performance and safety consulting. KnowledgeVine is error reduction that works, and we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.